Hello and welcome to the Sport in History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. This week we're continuing the series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the BSSH's Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series at the IHR with Professor Gary Sheffield of the University of Wolverhampton. Hi Gary. Hello there. Gary is the co-director with Professor Stephen Badsey of the First World War Research Group and he specialises in the history of Britain at war in the first half of the 20th century. Indeed, he's one of the nation's foremost historians of the First World War and was one of the historians consulted on how to commemorate the war's centenary years from 2014. And Gary's work is not just confined to the academy. If you've studied the First World War, you've probably read one of his set texts, and he has also produced work which, was had a, which has had a public impact. In particular, his books on the Somme campaign, that was the Somme, published in 2004, and his biographical work on General Haig. So Gary, when you came to speak to us in spring last year, feels like quite a long time ago now, um, you were talking about the relationship between sport and the military in this country in the run-up to and during the First World War. Was sport seen as a positive activity for lower ranks in the regular army prior to the war? Yes, it was, and it became regarded as increasingly important as the late 19th century wore on and came in, in, into the 20th century. I, one of the things I found fascinating, I, I would claim to be a historian of sport, but I've actually found the history of sport to be very interesting and fitted into my own research interests. So one of the things I found extremely interesting is the way in which the growth of sport within the army reflects the growth of sport within wider society. Mm. Of course, you've got uh, football, soccer, as the Americans call it, becoming a, a major sport in, in the, probably the last three decades of the 19th century. There's all sorts of reasons for that. I mean, not least the fact that working men have more leisure time, so they can go and spend off and have a little bit more money to spend on a, on a Saturday afternoon wa wa watching football. And we see that reflected in the army. There are some officers who are particularly keen on encouraging their men to kick a football around or play cricket or rugby or whatever, whatever it happens to be. Football does seem to be the main, the main one though. And of course, given the fact that the, the army is overwhelmingly recruited from the working classes, or at least the, the ranks are, um, and football is very much a working class game, depending on your area, of course, but generally speaking, that, that's true. That's not wholly surprising. And I think that sport is seen as, as, seen as having a number of, of benefits. It keeps men fit keeps them out of the pub, and actually this is a major drive in the late 19th century to produce soldiers who are more sober and better citizens. One of the problems they have is actually a lot of, they've got a lot of time on their hands and life in a garrison town can be very boring. And it's a cantrick. Indeed, or all the shop. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, all sorts of things, sport is, is the main one, but there are other activities that are organised as well. And, and, and sport is seen as being very important in that sense. It also, of course, um, is, is useful in, in creating a spirit de corps. Mm. If you're actually kicking a football for the regiment, or for that matter, cheering on your regimental team playing football, it helps to create a sense of identity. It helps to sort of create these, these bonds of, of a spree, which late 19th, early 20th century army, I think, I, I think thought were particularly important. Mm. So, so yes, sport is seen as very much a, um, a positive thing, although it tends at this stage to be largely 
down to individual officers and, and, and regiments. Yeah. Um, Royal Engineers, actually, of course, were some of the leading, uh, uh, one of the leading football teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that they won the FA Cup. I can't remember exactly how many times, but a yeah. number of times in in, in the first decade of, yeah, of this, the early of this existence. Yeah. So, so yeah, so, so sport is seen by the army as being as being terribly important. One of the other things that I've, I've talked about to previous guests on the podcast, um, who are military uh, historians or military research, military history researchers, Amelia Clegg and Beth Gaskell, they've br both brought in the influence of muscular Christianity, mm. which uh, sports historians have worked on a lot. But um, I'm not such a I'm not so familiar with the, the literature in military history. Is that something that comes through in the military in the 19th century? Oh, ver very much so. It's part of this idea of improving the lot of the soldier. Uh, it's being seen as the, sort of, you know, the, the Christian duty uh, of officers to do so. And in, in, in the military context, it's wrapped up with the whole idea of paternalism. Mm. The idea, put crudely, that uh, privilege entails uh, responsibility. So there's a famous uh, set of paintings up in hanging in, in the mess of the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, which is oh, where wow. I, I, I began my teaching career, so I got, yeah. became very familiar with these, which has, has another form of sport, that is um, hunting, mm. fox hunting specifically, whereby you've got a, a pair of pictures, and uh, in one it shows uh, an officer going into a, a stable and saying to the the uh, the man who's working with the horses, the horse is all right. And then you have the comparable picture shows an officer going up to a group of soldiers and saying, uh, is your food all right, men? <laughs> and, the, and, and the two pictures share the same caption, noblesse oblige. Yeah. Oh, the okay. idea that yeah. privilege entails responsibility. And muscular Christianity has various aspects, and it is reflected in sport. So you do see that. See, I think quite a major change in the attitude of officers towards their soldiers towards the end of the nineteenth century. Mm. Um, there's a, a memoir by by Robert Blatchford, who became very famous late nineteenth century as a, as a slightly maverick socialist. But anyway, but he was in the in the army in I think the eighteen seventies. And he writes about how his officers basically, at the end of the day, would just clear off and leave, leave them alone. The one exception being the regimental colonel or the, mm -hmm. the, the, the battalion commander, the, 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 the colonel. And I think the point about this is that in the 1870s, that behavior was starting to become unusual. 30 years later, it would have been seen as a gross dereliction of duty by those officers. Things have really changed. Mm -hmm. And I think sport is part of this. So it's it's changing, um, but it's still um, the organisation of sport is still dependent on a kind of a voluntarist tradition within the army. Is it? It's not part of the structure of the army. Let's well, say formal structure. It, it, it is to a limited extent, but you know things like you know interregimental football competitions or any other sports competitions. It it it's still very largely reliant on individual officers taking an interest, mm. and some regiments are frankly keener on it than, 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 than others. And so does this change during World War I? What, what happens during the war uh, to sport, let's say? I think it does. Um, to some extent, I think you simply see more of the same but on a much larger scale. Because of course, what happens when the army 
uh, expands in the First World War is that you have literally millions of men joining mm. the army who would not have joined the regular army under peacetime conditions. And these men carry with them into the army their likes, dislikes, habits, prejudices from civilian life. Mm. And so very early on, uh, it became clear that one way to tap into this was to make more of sport. And this continues at a regimental level, that, that's certainly true, uh, but also you start to see a bit more of organisation in terms of sport. There's two, two examples I'd like to give. The first one is you have very large-scale sporting competitions. Um, one thing you often find talked about are things like the Divisional Horse Show. I remember reading in one of, the, I think, one of the regimental histories published in the 30s, that the author says it may seem bizarre in a book about the Western Front and Trench warfare to be talking about sporting events. But then he goes on to say, but actually, no, it really is not, because this is all about bonding, it's about esprit de corps, and also sport is seen as a form of training. That, that, that's, that's the second part. So there are some uh, official training manuals which appear, which specifically pick up on sport as an analogy for, for training. So things like bomb throwing, mm. um, things like stalking, which is relating to going out of patrol and reconnaissance. And I think both at a regimental level and also at, at a more, more formal level, officers realise that one way to a, appeal to or get through to uh, soldiers who are frankly civilians in uniform mm. is to talk about the things which interest them. And if they're interested in sport, so be it. And there are all sorts of ways in which the officer and the ordinary soldier could actually find some point of contact. The idea that they had no contact is some truth of it in peacetime. It's much less true under conditions of active service. Um, but one way of, of, of dealing with this is to sort of share their passion for sport. So I remember coming across uh, an account from an officer who talks about uh, a soldier rushing up to him during the Second Battle of Ypres in April, May, I think it was, 1915, with the news that um, Sheffield United has beaten Chelsea in the Cup <laughs> final. And, you know, this makes no sense at all outside uh, the, the context of shared interest in sport. Yeah. A similar way, at Gallipoli, um, in late 1915, things are not going well at Gallipoli. It's obvious that the Allies are not going to win and make, make any uh, substantial advances. And a new commanding officer comes in to, to take over 8th Corps at Cape Hellas, which is the southern part, which is where, where, where the British are stationed. Uh, 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 Lieutenant General uh, F.J. Davis, known as, known as Joey Davis. And Davis comes from the Western Front mm. And he comes with a whole lot of ideas about things which could be applied to the situation in Gallipoli. Some work, some don't. But in terms of morale, what's very interesting is that he has a twin-track approach. He basically tightens up discipline. So, for example, he insists on saluting, which has largely gone by the board. But he also introduces leisure uh, in a way which has not really been there at an official level beforehand. Partly because in Gallipoli, it's such a tiny place. There's virtually no flat bits of ground in which you can play football. Uh, 
which are not being shelled or shot at by the Turks. But one of the things he does introduce is the Dardanelles Cup, which is a football tournament and various units play against each other. And uh, I haven't quite got to the bottom of this. I think the final of the Dardanelles Cup is actually played after they've already pulled out of Gallipoli. Right. <laughs> and actually they're, they're played on, on one, well, I believe, on one, one of the adjacent, on one of the, one of the adjacent <coughs> islands. But what I think is very interesting is that football, along with music and various other things, are seen as being one of the things that's missing from Gallipoli. One of the things which can help to sort of shore up morale. And there's some evidence that this policy does actually work. I think that's an interesting point to make to sports historians as well, is that often we're looking at sport in isolation as an activity, but often from the people who are organising these kinds of activities, they just see sport as one of a range of things that, for example, soldiers can do in their leisure time, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, if, if you think of it as, as like, a, like, like a toolkit, you know, so you take out different tools for different things. So on the Western Front in particular, uh, soldiers relate to, to some extent able to pursue their own hobbies uh, behind the lines they could find a sort of reading room and, and, and read something you even had trips to the seaside you had concert parties and you had sport mm. so sport is one of a range of things which are of leisure activities which are available to 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 the soldier in the first world war something else i think you picked up on in your paper was the the importance of the platoon in a sporting context Within, within the military during World War One, and the way it's naturally a team formation. Well, that's right. Team a, 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 unit. An infantry platoon is at full strength about 30 people. Mm. Uh, realistically, the numbers fall quite dramatically on active service. So it's roughly the size of a sports team, a bit bigger than a sports team, but roughly that size. And within that, you can see the platoon commander, usually a lieutenant or second lieutenant, as being the captain. Mm. You have got NCOs like sergeants who would be. I suppose, you know, sort of vice captains or the equivalent of the sort of people on a football pitch who are influential, you know, sort of the you know, sort of big noises in the dressing room without necessarily being being captains. But also it's a, it's, it's, it's a way of, of, of demonstrating leadership and bringing small disparate groups together. Mm. And the military do pick up on this. They, they recognise very clearly the analogy between platoons and sporting teams. And uh, one one um, training document in particular, I remember from 1917, makes a very big thing of this. There's another one which gives an account as a sort of um, how-to-do-it manual of a raid carried out by a Canadian unit and refers to the fact that uh, some of the people involved were footballers. Mm. Now, I'm not entirely sure what sort of football they mean by that, but nonetheless, the interesting thing is that outside a context of a sports-mad um, society and a military organisation which sees sport as being a positive benefit, the fact that these people are footballers is completely irrelevant. Mm. But in that context, it makes sense. Yeah. We're coming up to Christmas. <laughs> so <laughs> um, one, one sporting activity that people will be aware of the general public, I would say, especially on the back of a John Lewis advert, I think it was, or Sainsbury's a couple of years ago, is the notorious uh, football mm -hmm. match on Christmas Day in 1914. Uh, what's your take on that on that football match? Because there's a kind of a, a real tussle over whether it happened. Yeah. What, what I, I am 99.9% .9 sure <laughs> a football match did not take place. There may have been some kicking around of a football war at in can or something. Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm deep, deep, deeply dubious about it. Uh, having said that, a piece of evidence has emerged in the last couple of years which might, just might, push in that direction. Uh, for a long time, there was a lot, the only bits of evidence were available was everybody sort of said they'd heard about a football match taking part. Mm. No one could actually pin down a piece of evidence from the time which actually could be correlated with another piece of evidence. So, you know, so basically you've got two independent pieces of evidence pointing to, to, to the same event. So, for example, in the late 60s, there was um, a First World War veteran who turned out to be a complete fantasist. Right. <laughs> who talked about, you know, a match involving hundreds of people kicking a football. Now, it just never took place. I mean, yeah. if it had, people would have mentioned it. Sorry. People other than this one individual yeah, yeah, would have yeah. mentioned it. it. It didn't happen. But, but, uh, but um, some evidence has emerged that there may have been some sort of kickabout between a British unit and a German unit. We've had two independent pieces of evidence. So maybe. Um, but the idea that there was a formal match with spectators and a referee, I think we can yeah. happily... Um, um, you might put it just into a kind of a wider um, fraternisation that happened on Christmas Well, fraternisation certainly did yeah. happen. I mean, there's lots of evidence, including photographic evidence uh, that that actually happened. Soldiers uh, from both sides got up and met in the middle of, of no man's land. You know, they, they chatted, they shook hands, uh, they exchanged cat badges, some of them even cut each other's hair. Um, Fascinating subject, but we ought to be aware of several things. First of all is that not every soldier took part in this. Mm. In fact, some regiments um, refused to take part. Mm. And you can find some veterans, or evidence of some veterans, you know, years after the war, flatly refusing to believe it happened, because it hadn't taken place on their front. Mm. Hadn't taken part on their, on, 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 on their front. Um, so, some sort of interaction involving football, whether it be kicking a ball around or kicking a tin can around, I don't find implausible. Uh, but the idea of a full-blown football match, I do, with the exception of this, of these couple of pieces of evidence, which says maybe something did go on. Yeah. But, but it, most of the evidence you read is just, we thought football was a good idea, but no one had a ball, or we'd bring a ball tomorrow, but that didn't happen, or, you know, it's all yeah. hearsay and second-hand evidence. Yeah, but that... that that event or non-event um, is part of the romanticisation of, of the war, or the, certainly in the public's mind, I feel. And it it, it yeah. absolutely is. I mean, I, and I can quite see why that's the case, because First World War battles are so huge, uh, involve so many people. Boiling it down to a sort of easily sort of understandable, comprehensible event mm. with individual people involved is is much easier to sort of grasp within uh, within within uh, the compass of our minds. Um, it was noticeable in 2014, uh, during the first year of the, of the First World War centenary, the government of the BBC and so on made a, a big thing about the outbreak of the war, obviously, but they covered almost nothing over the next three or four months till they got to the Christmas truce, when they zoomed in on the football, which may or may not 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 have happened. So the Mons and the Miracle of the Marne kind of get... It, it got very little coverage. Uh, the first Battle of Ypres, which was the absolute... Well, it was it was a point at which the regular British army, what was left of it, was largely destroyed mm. in stopping the Germans breaking through. Critical battle got 
next to no coverage. Uh, historians like myself were tearing our hair out at that stage, but you know, we, didn't, yeah. we didn't control the agenda. <laughs> it's so hard to control um, public history in that way, isn't it? But you were part of the kind of the advisors that the government. Uh, well. Uh, Ye yes and no. There was an advisor, the formal advisory board, uh, which I was not a member. I think there was only one historian was on it, but I was one of uh, a number of historians who were given advice on a one-to-one -one basis. So, for example, I was brought in on several occasions by the DCMS and the Ministry of Defence to advise. Uh, so they they actually did did consult quite wi widely, but they didn't necessarily pay any attention to any of the things that we put forward. Yeah. And at, at the beginning of that commemoration process, you wrote an article in the magazine History, BBC History BBC Magazine, magazine that's right, yes. um, arguing that the reputation of the war needed to be rehabilitated. Uh, what, was, what was the argument that you were trying to make? Well, my mantra throughout the centenary years was if at the end of it people say, it's a lot more complicated than I thought it was, that's what historians always want the public to think, isn't it? Well, absolutely right. And, and I thought that would have, you know, that would have meant that, 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 that we would have got a result. The First World War, I think, is the most mythologised, one of the most mythologised events in British history. The, the view, which we can sum up as a lion's led by donkeys or, or Blackadder view, it was a war that was fought over trivial reasons, incompetently con conducted. Everybody hated it all the time. It was a complete disaster. And it it changed nothing. It, mm. You know, it, it made no difference. All of those points are wrong. You know, the war was, uh, in my view, a a challenge posed by uh, an aggressive, authoritarian, anti-democratic state uh, attacking its neighbours. Uh, Britain and France were, I mean, not perfect democracies, but nonetheless they were well on the road to becoming democracies. Mm. Uh, the people of those states were governed by broadly liberal principles. And the, the, the German attack, in short, was the beginning of 60 or 70 years of extreme pressure on liberal democracies, the First World War, the Second World War, then the Cold War. Now, you can make all sorts of arguments to modify that. So both Britain and France were major colonial powers. Mm. And um, many of the peoples in the empires you know, were not free to make their own decisions. India found itself at war because Britain was at war. All of this is true. It doesn't take away from the fact I think it was essentially a struggle in Europe which Britain could not afford to lose. If Britain had been defeated, it almost certainly would have meant the end of the liberal democracy in Europe, the establishment of a, a German empire, which lacked the sort of genocidal racism of the of Hitler's empire in the Second World War. But for all that was a pretty unpleasant uh, regime if you happen to be an occupied, a member of an occupied yeah. country. Life in occupied Belgium was not pleasant for, for the Belgian civilian population, was it? Absolutely it was not. And we've almost lost any sense of that. So when, or in Britain I should say. Yeah. So when in 1918 uh, the Allies were on the advance, Britain, British troops are being greeted in France and Belgium as liberators, mm. and we've lost any sense of that. But unless yeah. it's true. Also, I think for the position of Britain 
And the British Empire, of course, you know, Britain no longer has an empire. To think imperially is deeply unfashionable. But we must think the way they thought in 1914, not the yeah. way we think today. Yeah. And the Britain and the British Empire were seen to be facing an existential threat from Germany. And I think actually, by their lights, they were absolutely right, right to think that. So that's the first thing. Then, of course, you look at the conduct of the war. It was horrendously bloody. There was a lot of incompetence, by no means uh, limited to the British uh, army. But this is, I think, largely because of the, the changes in warfare over previous years, the fact that you had immensely more powerful weapons, armies of a size that people had never fought with before, and warfare was changing quite fundamentally while in contact on the battle, while armies were in contact on the battlefield. Now, all of this make, brings to me the, the thought that, um, given the British Army had to be expanded from a small force, a very large force from scratch, bringing large numbers of effectively amateurs, civilians, into the army. It, the fact that Britain suffered heavy casualties and didn't make more pro progress on the Western Front is not as surprising to me as Britain didn't suffer more casualties and they made as much progress as they did. By the end of the war, by 1918, the British Army is pretty effective. Along with its allies, it wins the first war against Germany in, in the West. Again, we lost any sense of that. Uh, yeah, I felt that was a story that didn't come through in the commemoration. It didn't. Well, we, we, we tried to bring it through, but really difficult pushing a, you know pushing uphill on, 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 on that one. Uh, but nonetheless, it's true. I mean, I think that uh, military historians today look back at the First World War and say, OK, if you're looking for a point at which warfare changed from a sort of quasi-Napoleonic approach to where we are today, mm. the origins are in the First World War. Of course, warfare has changed dramatically since 1914, but essentially it's the same sort of, sort of warfare but a much more sophisticated, technologically advanced form that the armies of the world train for and practice today. Mm. It was developed on, on, on the Western Front. And we, the Brits, I think, are particularly parochial about this because the British uh, army, well, the British forces in general, lost more men in the First World War than any time before or since. However, if you're a Russian or, a ver or various other nationalities, it's not the First World War that your largest loss is, it's the second. Yeah. The British, yeah. for all sorts of reasons, actually did not suffer as, as much heavy uh, fighting and therefore losses in the Second World War. So we see the First World War through, I think, a rather distorted lens, mm. the lens being distorted by, by the Second World War. The book that you've been working on is about civilian armies, I think. So we've been talking about World War I as a time when the British Army expanded enormously. Um, and also about the soldiers' experience in two world wars. How do you see that experience change from the First to the Second World War? Do they learn from their mistakes in the First World War? So I'm looking at the experience of British troops, also Dominion, so Australia, New Zealand, Canadian, South African troops. And in both, both wars, you had small regular armies massively expanded by this influx of volunteers and later conscripts. Mm. And that's new for Britain, isn't it? The fact that it's a conscript army. That's that's new. Of course, as it's opposed all, to France, for example. France and Germany and Russia and most continental states actually have conscript armies. Britain does not. Mm. And in the Empire, conscription is introduced in some, but not all dominions. So Australia never introduces mm. it, for example, in 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 the, in the First World War. 
and it's really there's there's two stories being told here. There's the way there's the way that this influx of civilians changed the army, and the way in which the army changed these influx of civilians. In in, in the first case, the army was forced to adapt largely because many of the officers of these newly raised units uh, had no military or very little military experience themselves. And mm. so, for example, you find some units of the Territorial Force and, the, and Kitchener's Army having a, a very different attitude towards discipline and much more informal officer-man relations than you would get, get, get in the regular army. In the Second World War, you tend to see more of the same, although certainly in the case of the British, the regular army, I think, is much quicker very early on to colonise, if I can use that term, mm. the territorial army. So you have territorial units of pre-war part-time volunteer soldiers who many of them suddenly see their officers replaced by regulars and they try to impose a much more uh, uh, regular army way, way, way of doing things. And um, in both cases, I think the, the regular army adjusts to the influx of soldiers, of, of civilian soldiers, for the duration of the war. But afterwards, it pretty rapidly goes back to being uh, something close to the, 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 the pre-war army. Mm. After the Second World War, it's a bit different, of course, because they introduce national service or yeah. peacetime conscription. But nonetheless, the regular army remains in firmly control throughout. As far as the way that the army affected civilians, well that's an absolutely fascinating subject because um, in Britain, indeed across the empire, there's a strong tradition of what I call civilian soldiering, mm. going well back into the 19th century. So people join their local territorial or, or if you're overseas, militia units, uh, sometimes because they're keen you know, to sort of assert their, their responsibilities as, as a citizen more often a lot because they like the sporting aspect, it's a club, uh, they like playing at soldiers, all these sorts of things. Mm. But anyway, there, there is quite a, a, a civilian soldiering tradition in, in, uh, in Britain and the Empire before the war. So they're not entirely untrained, or they're, they're not in, or, uh, trained is not the right word, they're not in, in, entirely uh, unready to be introduced in, into military life. And yet, once they're in the grip of a total organisation, like an army or, or an army unit under wartime conditions, things undoubtedly change. And we have all sorts of ways in which people's, I mean, horizons are expanded. Uh, you can come from the outback in Australia and find yourself in Egypt or Gallipoli or home, inverted commas, yeah to Britain. Um, people are sort of traumatised by the experience of war. Some people see the war as absolutely the best time of their life. They've, they've got comradeship, they have got a sense of purpose, they simply don't have in civilian life. So there's a whole range. And it's exciting. Response, and it's exciting. There's a whole range of, response, of responses. You can't actually generalise about it. And of course, in the book, I do. <laughs> um, but from a very deep research uh, basis. Uh, yes, that's, 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 well, at least I, 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 I hope so. Um, but one thing that does come through is that there is a commitment to fight and win throughout the First World War, that actually the war is a popular war, not in the sense that people are sort of waving flags and cheering, but determination to see things mm. through. 
In the Second World War, and I'm building on the um, here the work of a, a friend and uh, uh, a former colleague, uh, Jonathan Fennell, written an excellent book on uh, British and uh, British Empire armies mm. in the Second World War. It seems that they're they're much less clear why they're fighting, which is odd at one level because it's a more educated population. They are perhaps a little bit more worldly wise coming. Mm. A generation after the First World War, and yet it's very clear from a series of morale reports, which uh, we don't have any any like this, anything like the same number or or, uh, or or detail for the First World War, but the Second World War, it's very clear that it's simply not getting through why these people are there fighting. Right, um, and I think that puts greater pressure on units to keep up morale, and on the whole. British and Dominion morale remains high, and yet there isn't that same sense of purpose you get in the First World War. Well, one of the paradoxes of World War One, which showed extraordinary imperial unity, didn't it? But maybe with the um, exception of South Africa mm. in some cases, actually spurs the kind of nationalism within the colonies, or within the Dominions, I should say, that might produce that effect in World War Two. do you think? There's something in that. Uh, of course, Francophone Canada is the mm. other part oh, of the Dominion, which yeah. which is, yeah. uh, is 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 resistant. Which is because Francophone Canada have, have have really has very little sympathy for Republican France. You would have thought mm. they would have done, but but no. And so some of the most severe strains Canadian society have ever been placed under comes with huge anti-conscription riots in, in, in Quebec. Right, I did not in know anything. Oh, yeah, it's really, really serious. Yeah. And um, so Canadian society is put under severe strain. South, Af uh, South Africa, of course, you, of course, you've got the Boer War has only ended, you know, not much, much more than a decade before the First World mm. War breaks out. And so there are natural tensions in South Africa. There's, there's a, a bitter end of Boer rebellion at the beginning of the mm. war. Uh, the, 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 South, the South Africans uh, come on actually because they commit a brigade to the Western Front and, and, and considerable forces to, to else, elsewhere in Africa. And as you rightly say, what happens in the First World War, there is a spur to nationalism. Uh, although what's often forgotten by sort of you know, popular writers today in, in Australia and Canada, not I hasten to add my counterparts as professional <laughs> historians, is that it's couched as though Australians became Australians and Canadians became Canadians in the 21st century sense overnight as a result of Gallipoli mm. in 1915 and Vimeridge in 1917. What actually happened was, I think, both Canadians and Australians, and for that matter New Zealanders, had a stronger sense of being of a nationality. Mm. But this was within a, an imperial context. There's absolutely no... Um, contradiction between being an Australian nationalist and a loyal member of the empire Yeah. at the end of the war indeed in, in, into the Second World War. So too often we tend to read back 21st century attitudes into those of a hundred years ago and they just think simply thought a different way then. Yeah, home was still seen at home as home uh, even, even after. You could have been no, you could have been born in Australia, your parents could have been born in Australia and you could still think of Britain as home. Yeah. So um, you're, you're now um, one of the foremost military historians in the country. Um, to say so. All of us start from somewhere, though. So I often, a question I often ask people that I talk to for this podcast is, 
where they found the spur to become interested in history in the first place? Where was your own? Okay, well, I've always been interested in history for as long as I can remember. Mm. I mean, um, I, probably the first history book I read, I'm pretty sure was the Lady Bird story of Nelson. Right, <laughs> I remember the cover of that book. Uh, I must well, have read that when I was a child. Yeah, I, 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 I certainly did. And later on, you know, I made airfix kits and what have you. What got me interested in the First World War uh, I actually can I can put a precise point in time on this one. Uh, at the age of thirteen, I read Martin Middlebrook's First Day on the Somme, mm. which is uh, still a, a classic book on the First World War. I became fascinated by this. Couldn't find much in my local library on the First World, a little bit, but not but, but not very much. But I never lost interest in that. And then, what, five or seven years later, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Leeds doing history, there was a special subject on Britain and the First World War. Mm. And I took that subject. Uh, the chap who, who, who offered it, uh, Dr. Hugh Cecil, got a good friend and still very much in touch with him to this day. And um, on the back of that, my dissertation was on the raising of a Kitchener Army Battalion in 1914. And from that point onwards, never really looked back. At the end of that, I decided I wanted to become a professional historian. So, so my, my, my post-grad work was in this, in this, 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 this field. Mm. Um, uh, amazingly enough, I got a temporary job at Sandhurst in 1985 without a PhD. I mean, right. wouldn't even, <laughs> even look at my application form today, but, uh, but with a master's degree, um, I was made permanent at the end of that year, did my PhD part-time at King's College London and no one's rumbled me since, or, <laughs> or it's not sufficiently to, to, uh, to, uh, to make a difference. So, so my, my interest goes back really from early childhood. Um, yeah, I'm interested in that undergraduate experience because I think it's something that um, undergraduates that I've spoken to before, they're, they're sometimes worried about going further, going further on to MAs and PhDs. The relationship you have as an undergraduate with members of staff is really important, isn't it, in kind of finding a path into... Uh, Absolutely it is. I, I, I have been so lucky by my, my mentors, not only at undergraduate level, mm. uh, but at Leeds, uh, Hugh Cecil, who ran the, uh, the special subject, was, could, could not be more encouraging. In fact, when I went on to do a master's at, at Leeds, he was one of my uh, co-supervisors. I, I owe him a huge amount, one of the reasons I'm sitting here today. Mm. Um, Edward M. Spears, uh, not a very distinguished historian at Leeds. He also taught me as an undergraduate, and he was my other co-supervisor. Uh, and again, I owe Ed a huge amount as well. And later on, oh, my PhD supervisor, Professor Brian Bond at King's College London, various people when I was a junior lecturer at Sandhurst. I've been so lucky in the people who, who've, who've mentored me. I mean, you know, people ask me how, how I became an academic, and the short answer is that a certain degree of talent, a lot of hard work, mm. A huge slice of luck mm. to get me in the job in the first place, but also I've been became lucky in, in, in the people who've who've helped me along. Well, sometimes you make your own luck though. As, as a student, for example, 
it's really important to talk to your uh, supervisors, isn't it? And to kind of build up that relationship. Sometimes, I, when I was a student, I felt like it was kind of on, on I didn't find people approachable because I was quite young. Um, but maybe I was naive, you know, <laughs> I should have been more. No, um, that's, that's, that's right. I mean, you know, yeah. having had, what, 35 years as an academic now, mm. it's rewarding when your undergraduates and postgraduates do engage with you and mm. do want to take it further. And of course, that becomes a point in which they stop being your students and start becoming your colleagues and friends, which, which again is incredibly, incredibly rewarding. Um, no, I, I was just very lucky in the people who taught me and doing that particular degree. And I had a wonderful time. At, at, at Leeds, I mean, I still look back on it uh, very, you know, with huge amount of, uh, of 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 affection, and it put me on the the bottom rung of the ladder, which took me up to where where, where I am today. So I'm aware that this is a sport history podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> one final question um, from the research that you've been doing on the culture of the British Army. Uh, do you see any areas for future research into sport in the military? Oh, absolutely I do. Uh, I have been really struck by the, um, by the quality of some of the material I've been reading on sport history. As I say, I'm actually, I, I, I should actually say I am actually a sports fan. Yeah. <laughs> in, my, in my everyday life, I'm, I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan and, you know, and, I, and I like all, all sorts of sports. So, I, I, you know, this isn't purely academic for me. Um, but until comparatively recently, I hadn't really looked at sport history in the context of my own research. Not entirely true, I did it a few years ago, but for this major project I've sort of tur turned back to it. And there's some fantastic stuff out there. I mean, I mean, Tony Mason's work in particular mm. I found very inspirational. And what um, has brought home to me, and in fact talking to people like you, is that there's a huge amount of crossover between military history, the social history of military organisation, and sport history, and frankly, we ought to spend more time talking to each other, mm. because I found stuff in the sport history field, which is, you know, which has really opened my eyes and has been has been, you know, really helpful for my own research. And I'm sure sports historians come and look at the stuff that we do; they would find exactly the same. So, so no, I really think there's there's a lot of areas for um, for crossover and uh, and for collaboration. If I could just put in a plug, mm. yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I was involved in setting up something called the uh, Football and War Network, which we've mm. run out of here at the U University of, of Wolverhampton. And my colleague, uh, Dole, uh, Dr. Alex Alexandru, is, is the main man on that. And that's really what one of the things we've been trying to do, get together historians from different spheres to share our experiences, to share our research, and actually contribute towards greater understanding of the role of of sport and, 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 and war history. And for that matter, you know, the role of war in sport. Mm. One of the spin-offs for that, actually, is that uh, Alex gave a lecture to, to our undergraduates uh, earlier in the year, and he inspired uh, one of our undergraduates to do a dissertation looking at uh, the local football club, Wolverhampton Wanderers, which I could almost but not quite see the ground <laughs> from uh, my room uh, and he's going in to look at the archives and, 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 and uh, uh, look around it and that's exactly the sort of thing we want to encourage you know yeah. to bring together sport history and wider history gen uh, military history and uh, I think 
that the, uh, the Football War Network is a really good step in that direction. Oh, great. Well, I'll make sure I put a link to, uh, to your homepage on, on our homepage. Um, and thanks, thanks, Gary. Thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me today. And I'm looking forward to reading the book. <laughs> thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Um, regular listeners uh, will know that um, we, uh, we're, we also run uh, the Sport and Leisure History Seminar at the IHR. And we have a seminar coming up very soon. On the 2nd of December, Professor Kai Schiller will be talking about the career of Alex Nathan, the fastest Jew in Germany, um, who was a competitive athlete between the wars. So if you want to come along to that, it's open to the public. Anyone can come along, and the details are on our website. Um, the next podcast will be another podcast takeover from America, and Connor, Connor Heffernan, will be talking to Andrew Howe about the history of the Olympics. So uh, look out for that one sometime after next weekend. For more information, do get in touch with us via the BSSH website, which is sportinhistory.org, or tweet us at the BSSH's account. Or you can visit the IHR's revamped website at history.ac.uk. And that's all for this episode. So until next time, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>